Good morning. They've added some things since I used to preach here. One is this giant screen back here that says 25. <laughs> It'd really be nice if we could put like blinders on that so nobody else could see it. <laughs> you didn't start it yet, did you? Come on, I'm not preaching yet. I didn't get to my introduction. Start that thing over. Gee whiz, <clears throat> like the referee says, put 25 minutes on the clock. There, there thank you very much. <laughs> Get my full quota here. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, the Bible often says <laughs> we should be content with what we have, right? Not striving, not grasping, greedy climbing over other people to get by, just sort of relaxed, content, like this young woman, right? Be content, yeah. But the Bible also says that God invites us to seek him and all that he has to offer us, and it never suggests that we will be so satisfied with him that we won't want more of him. Huh? God is something like Coca-Cola. He creates his own thirst. You know, the more of him you have, the more you want. So this sermon is all about wanting more, much more, more of God and of everything he can give us. I'm not satisfied with a lot of things, and, and I don't want you to be satisfied either. My, my goal this morning is to make you thirsty, to create a holy dissatisfaction in you with the way things are in your life and in our church a holy discontentment that wants more of God. Because honestly, folks, unless we are dissatisfied with where we are, we'll never make the effort to change. Our theme for these weeks leading up to Lent is recentering on the gospel. And a couple of weeks ago, Joey pointed out that God will always lead us to recenter on Jesus. That's right, we do want and need to recenter our lives on him, that he would be the center of our lives. Great song, thank you very much. Says it well. And the thing, when I first think about him, about recentering on him, the first thing that comes to my mind is that he is worthy of more. He deserves more than he's getting from me and from us. Psalm 96, 8 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Well, how much glory is he due? What does he deserve? A brief summary. Jesus is the king of the universe. He is the creator of all things, including of us. He's the eternal second person of the Godhead. He's the savior who loved us more than his own life and sacrificed his life in order to bring us into a relationship with himself. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven from where he rules the world. And much more could be said. But because of who he is and what he's done, he is worthy of much more glory than he's getting from us individually and through our church. Our church has kind of given him a little black eye in our community lately because we've not reacted to our differences and our conflict the way his followers always should. And I'm praying for the day when we will once again be a strong, united healthy, loving congregation that the Lord Jesus can use for his glory here in this city and around the world. And Jesus is worthy of more of our love, 
we know the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> our loyalties are divided. <laughs> we do love God, but we also love ourselves too much. We love doing things our way. We love our comforts and conveniences. We love our routines and our entertainment. And then on top of that, our hearts are deceitful, and they deceive us into thinking that we are loving him with everything in us, and we're just giving him a little bit of us. So I want more glory for Jesus than he's getting. I want him to have a great reputation in the minds of every person who knows me and every person who knows this church. But I also want a lot more for myself. This is going to be sort of a shopping list of things that I want for myself, and hopefully some of these will resonate with you. I'm playing the part of the advertiser here this morning. I'm setting these things out on display for us in hopes that you'll say, oh, yeah, I can't do without that either. Okay? If I were to name one thing I want more of than anything else, it would be more of the Holy Spirit. And with him, a greater sense of God's presence. Almost every Sunday, in whichever service I attend, I pray during our singing time, Lord, come, come overwhelm us, put us on our faces. We need the manifest presence of God. There's a song that we sing in the contemporary service that says this really well. It says, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come, flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, Lord, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. Yeah, that's, that's what I want. That's what we need. Please come. And, and in John 14, Jesus indicates this is available to us. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him, reveal myself to him, manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. My father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. I want God to be more real to me, to show himself to me, to make, make his home with me. Don't you want that too? My conviction is that if we had more of Jesus, more of his spirit, a more acute awareness of his presence with us, and not just in morning worship times, but all the time, then we would also see some of the other things that I want and I think we need. For example, I want to see more signs and wonders. The New Testament's filled with them. And the believers came to expect them and specifically ask for them. Acts 4.30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen. Yes, Lord, more. More of that. We don't want miracles as a spectacle to draw people like a circus. We, We don't want miracles to draw attention to ourselves. We want to see them as the power of God displayed as confirmation of his word. That's what we saw in the early church. Acts 14.3, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there in Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. And when God does that, it moves us, his people, to love and worship him more, and it also results in more believers as in Acts 3 and 4, when the church almost doubled overnight from 3,000 to 5,000 because a beggar at the gate of the temple was healed. Let me say one more word about miracles. When I was in seminary, one of our professors 
uh, had this phrase that he would often say, and we eager young seminarians turned it into a joke about scholarly language. His phrase was the eschatological tension between the already and the not yet. And that was our response, too. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> okay, but, but, but it, actually, it actually contains a very profound thought. It means that the kingdom of God has already come in the person of the king, the Lord Jesus. And now he is working out his purposes through us, his people, and his spirit whom he's given us. But the kingdom has not yet fully come. It's already come but not yet fully come, which is why we still have to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So we live in this in-between time, this tension here between the already and the not yet. And in this in-between time, we see miracles. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into our time and space, but we don't see them all the time, and we don't see nearly as many as we would like. So all I'm saying here is, I want more, (laughs) more miracles, more signs and wonders that point to the glory of our great God. And I frequently argue with him that it would be good for his reputation (laughs) as well as for our blessing. (laughs) I also need much more love for other people. Jesus said the most important commandment is, love the Lord your God with everything in you, and then he refused to leave it there, though the man had only asked him for one great commandment, but he refused to leave it there and gave him a second. The second is, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how are we doing? I think I know what the vast majority of unchurched Americans would say about us. Generally speaking, they do not see Christians as lovers They see us as the people who are against. We are against the prevailing cultural climate and values. And why not, we ask. Those values are completely contrary to the word of God. Yes, they are. And so is our attitude toward those people who hold those values. That's also contrary to God's word. The question here is not how do we love those in our church, though that's an important question we should wrestle with at this point in our history. The question in this verse is how do we go about showing love to those with whom we have significant differences? How do you show love, for example, to political liberals? Sadly, I think I know because some of them have spoken to me. How do you show love to homosexuals or transgendered people? To the homeless in town? to illegal Hispanics, to Muslims. I've been reading a book that pokes me in this. There's a chapter called Loving the Stranger, and I've gotten worked over the coals quite a bit. I discovered as I worked through this that I have trouble loving anyone who's not a lot like me. Some people don't even love anybody who doesn't agree with them. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Love your neighbor as yourself. You do know that immediately following this command, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And he puts this, you know, the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along. (laughs) They're not like us. We don't like them. Yeah, but it's the Samaritan who showed love to the Jew. I have a long way to go.
What about you? Lord, fill us with your love. And I need more faith. (laughs) I am so embarrassed by my lack of faith. And I helped found Faith Church. A certain irony there. (laughs) Sometimes people confuse our church with Faith Church in Fort Collins. And I explain the difference by saying, well, they're big faith and we're little faith. That's right, I hope people laugh because it's intended to be a joke, but there is more truth in that for me personally than I'm comfortable with. I often don't expect God to answer my prayers like David did in Psalm 5.3. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. Jesus taught a lot about the importance of faith. When he healed people, he told them it was their faith that did it. He castigated the disciples for their lack of faith and their little faith because they didn't believe he could calm the storm. He said in John 14, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father from where he would send the Holy Spirit. And I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You can ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. I want... I need more faith, trust, confidence, expectation. Now, I'm encouraged that Jesus healed the boy with seizures, even though his father admitted, help my unbelief. I'm greatly encouraged by that. So I come to him and I say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Give us more faith. And I want more new believers in our church. I have reason to believe that the percentage of Loveland's population that is Christian hasn't changed much in the 40 years I've been here. I was encouraged that adults were coming to faith under Rob's ministry, but for most of the history of this church, we have grown largely through our ministry as a refugee center for disaffected Christians from other churches or people who moved to town and found us. That's not good. Not good. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm delighted you're here. (laughs) Because I'm guessing most of you came here from some other church. I am thrilled with the wonderful, godly, mature Christians that God has brought to us. But I want to see many more Christians in Loveland and more new spiritual babies in our church. So I, I tremble to ask this question, but let me just ask. How many of you met Christ in this church? One. One. Two. Two. Well, God bless you. But do you see my point? Yeah. I know babies, physical and spiritual, are messy, noisy, demanding. All of that, I know that. But new baby Christians are so necessary. Lord, we'll put up with their selfishness and their immaturity and their biblical ignorance, but give us new believers. I want us to be like the church in Acts where it said the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. But, you know, these things always have a catch in them. 
If we're going to see more new believers in our church, then it will require much more boldness on our part. Combined with more love and compassion for people who are not like us and who don't yet know the good news. We can't leave it to the paid staff at the church. Each of us is going to have to step up and step out in greater boldness. Now, I could be wrong, but I think the problem is that we're too conscious of the fact that the culture sees us as narrow-minded, bigoted, and not very smart. But friends, this is nothing compared to what our forefathers in the early church experienced. And yet they prayed in Acts 4, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Well, we might feel that way. Lord, consider their threats. Our culture is going to that place in a handbag. Uh, you know, it's, it's terrible what's happening. And, and consider their threats uh, and, and, and wipe those godless people off the face of the map. Oh, that's not what they prayed. No, they prayed for more boldness. But you do know that if you go back just a few verses, you'll see that it was their boldness that got them arrested and threatened in the first place. And now they're asking for more boldness. How smart is that? (laughs) And how did God respond to that prayer? He shook the meeting place and filled them with his spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. I, I I think we're too timid. We're so afraid of what our secular society will think of us. At the worst, people might avoid us. They might think we're crazy or stupid or something, but some will hear and respond. Oh, God, make us bold. Some of you know that Barbie and I worked for World Outreach for a few years. It's the mission-sending arm of our denomination, Partly because of that and partly because it's been on my heart for a long time, uh, I want to see more workers in the field, more missionaries. Every day at 10.02, my alarm goes off to remind me to pray Luke 10.2, which says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send more workers into his harvest field. So I do. I pray for more missionaries from all over the world and especially from our church. Uh, Of the 32 missionary families and individuals that our church supports, 12 of them are what we call homegrown, meaning they were part of our church and we sent them out from here. It used to be half. Now it's 12 out of 32. Here I'm showing you some of their pictures. We can't show the pictures of others because the places where they're working, the government doesn't want them there doing what they're doing. I want to see many more, young and old, You're not off the hook if you're over 60. I know some 60-year-olds who went to live in Malaysia as missionaries. I know some 60-plus-year-olds who've gone to teach English in other parts of the world. But I want to see many more respond to the call of the Lord who is always asking, whom shall I send and who will go for us? I'm so excited that Abigail and Alyssa were commissioned in our church last December, sent off on their first long-term missionary assignment. There's another young man who I think is in the pipeline But, Lord, I want more, more from our church, because that's so good for our church. That's been a value in our church. Well, there's a lot more. Uh, I'm a greedy, greedy man. I'm grateful, Lord. You know I'm grateful for what is, but I do want more. What about you, folks? Have I whetted your appetite? Are you thirsty at all? You want some of these things, too?
I want to create this holy dissatisfaction in you with things as they are now. And what would we do if we did want more? How can we get more? But one place to start is with an honest self-assessment. Where are you now in your walk with Christ, your sense of his presence, your faith, your love, and so on? And where do you want to be? I told you some of where I am and where I want to be. It's only when we see the distance (laughs) between where we are and where we want to be that we will be motivated to make the necessary changes. We have to be dissatisfied with this in order to overcome the inertia that keeps us there. And the inertia is enormous. The overarching biblical word for what we can do is seek. Seek. Psalm 105.4. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. When the Bible talks about seeking the face of God, it it means we're wanting a more intimate, personal relationship with him, where he's more real to us. It's an attitude of the heart, a longing, a, a desiring, a pleading, a craving for more of him, for more of the kinds of things that I've sketched out here today. Now, you've heard the proverb, where there's a will, there's a way. Years ago, I read in a book, this man said, uh, each of us is exactly as close to God as we want to be. And when I read that, I took offense. Because I, the, my first thought was, I'm, I remember writing it in the margin. Oh, no, I want to be much closer to God than I am now. But then I began to think about what he'd said. <laughs> really? If I really wanted to be closer to him, <laughs> if I really wanted more of his glory in my life and my church, I would find a way. Where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. So the problem is not in the way. The problem is in the will. We'll feel what David felt when he wrote Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Or Psalm 63. O God... You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If we're dehydrated in the desert, we'll do whatever it takes to get that water. If our souls are parched and cracked because we need more of the living water that only Jesus can give us, We'll do whatever it takes. We'll find a way to get that living water. The problem is, as I discovered when I moved to Colorado, that it's possible to be physically dehydrated and not know it. I think the same thing is true spiritually. Is it possible that your soul is parched and you're not even aware of it? I could preach another whole sermon on how we seek him, what are the things we actually do, but I think you already know what to do. We study scripture, we pray, we fast, we get away from everything to spend extended time with the Lord. Now, I need to pause there for a minute because I've been been saying that one (laughs) for, oh, 34 years or so, how important it is to get away, spend Extended time, just hanging out with the Lord. Can I ask how many of you do that on a regular basis? Well, like I said, 
we're exactly as close to God as we want to be. Other things we can do, you know, we can worship, fellowship with other people who are seeking seeking the Lord, ask them to pray for us, attend corporate worship every chance we get, confess our sins, apologize to those we've offended, forgive those who've hurt us. You know the drill. You know how to do this. And you also know the definition of insanity, doing the same things over and over and expecting different results. So let's not be insane. If we're not yet where we want to be in terms of our whole Christian experience, in terms of our apprehension, awareness of God, our love, our faith, all the rest, what has to change? What are you willing to change? Or more, maybe more importantly, what are you not willing to change? How thirsty are you? And then the third thing that we can do is to ask Jesus for more. Luke 11, Jesus tells a story about a man who's gone to bed, and he hears somebody pounding on his door. It's his neighbor who says, hey, uh, some people just dropped by my house. They've come to stay with me. I don't have any food. Can you loan me some bread? And Jesus says, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, persistence, impudence, knocking into my door in the middle of the night, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. That's the way it would work with a neighbor. You would do the same. So, Jesus says, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Could he make it any plainer? He says the same thing, essentially six times. And if that's not enough encouragement, he compares our Heavenly Father to us human fathers. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We have sinful natures, and even we know how to give good gifts to our kids and grandkids, How much more will our perfect, loving Father in heaven give good gifts, the chief of which is the Holy Spirit, to those of his children who ask him? I don't know if this next story is true. I heard it in a sermon on YouTube, and I couldn't find the original source, but I think the the point it makes about God is just right. It's a story about Alexander the Great and one of his captains. captain came to Alexander one time and said he needed money for his daughter's wedding. And the king said, sure, whatever you want. Go talk to the treasurer. So he goes to the treasurer, and he asks for this astronomical sum. I mean, it's way over the top. Oh, my gosh. And the treasurer says, whoa, I'm not giving you that kind of money. i got to ask the king first. So he goes to the king, and he says, Alexander, are you aware that this captain of yours has just asked me for this ridiculous sum of money? And Alexander said, give him what he asked for. He honors me. Because he believes rightly that I am both rich and generous. Isn't that good? That's right. Our God is both unbelievably rich and generous. (laughs) He's so rich and so generous that he can and will give us what we need. Is my list too big? Am I asking for too much? John Newton wrote a hymn that said, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, 
none can ever ask too much. What do you need? I give us just a few moments of silent prayer and have you go to this great, rich, and generous king and ask him for what you need. Let's do that. I pray, (laughs) I pray, I pray, that you and I, being rooted and established in God's love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know in our experience this love that surpasses mere head knowledge, that you may be filled up with God himself. Amen.